Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 17th, 2019, and this is episode 2,569 of the Survival Podcast. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Today we're going to talk about a small commercial hydroponics farm model. Um, while I am going to come at this from a hydroponics standpoint, uh, this really, I'll explain why I'm doing hydro later. What I want to explain kind of in the intro segment here is that this really could apply to uh, any agricultural business model. The the way that I'm going to come at this is trying to solve the problem for especially small-scale non-commodity producers. That is, it is far more important how you market and sell your product than how you produce it. And what I mean by that is is really simple. If you are a, a corn farmer, a bean farmer, a wheat farmer, or whatever, and you're growing anything from an acre to 100,000 acres, whatever you harvest, there's a market price available for it, and you have apparatuses you can tie into that can be to the point where you don't even take part in your harvest. A lot of farmers don't actually have anything to do with harvesting or planting. They have... Other people, they pay to do it, and they just simply own the land. And you don't, if you went into, you know, corn country, or you went into potato country, or something like that, and you start talking to, you know, farmers, and you started talking to them about ways they could better market their product, they would tell you to go go screw. That they just don't need to be bothered with that. That there's no there's no issue there. You're trying. You're a solution in search of a problem for those people. Because they sell into a market-based economy through wholesalers and resellers and, and supply chain. Now, if you, I guess if you wanted to grow a half acre of corn, whatever little yields you got, you could go get your 50 bucks for it down at the feed mill or something and kind of tie into that. But if you're growing lettuce or broccoli or tomatoes or, or what have you on small-scale production, something akin to a market garden, especially if you're growing the really fast, high, profitable crops in that world, which are going to be your greens and your lettuces and spinaches and stuff like that. And you decide, I want to be able to produce 100 heads of lettuce a day. It's actually not that hard, especially with something like hydro or aquaponics. You start 100 plants a day, and you move them through the system, and you always start 100 plants every day. And if you have a seven-week production line or a five-week production line, once you get through that first production line, every day you harvest 100 heads of lettuce, 500 heads of lettuce, that whatever number you want. It's not that hard to do. It's not the magic. But let's say we decided we wanted to do 500 heads of lettuce a, a day of production. Okay. Your five weeks and one day comes. You now have 500 heads of lettuce. What are you going to do with it? How long do you have before it's not a viable product to sell anymore. Now, if you can get a commitment from somebody to buy 3,500 heads of lettuce a week from you, or somebody's, a group of clients or what have you, a book of business, then that model's beautiful, isn't it? You just move, you focus now on growing. But how do you do that? Because you ain't going to do it at farmer's markets. I see people at farmers markets all the time. Beautiful product. Half of it goes home with them. Unless they got some place to sell it on the way home for half price or something. How long is it going to last? So how do you build a book of business? Well, one of the best ways to do that is restaurants or stores. Because they're really good at forecasting their needs. So what I've tried to come up with is a blend of this technology that I'm learning about and my marketing and sales experience and say, well, what would, if I was a chef at a restaurant that could maybe buy $1,000 worth of product a week from somebody like this, what would sell me? Quality of product, et cetera. But what, what would, if, if someone could come in and give me a 30-minute presentation and say, this is how we're going to serve you, 
And this is how you can take what we're doing and use it to sell your product to your customers better. And here's why you can depend on us to give you exactly what we promised to give you and give you a competitive advantage. You can do that. I'm in. So my question was, how could I do that? And I think if you are somebody who wants to produce pigs and chickens, as long as you can solve the issue of getting the product to the customer with your state regulations, the model I'll lay out today would work for you as well. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I think it's a, it's going to be a good lesson in agricultural components. It's going to be a good lesson in some hydroponic concepts. And it's going to be a really good lesson in business and sales and marketing, which that's a pretty decent show for a Tuesday. If you can't tell, my voice is uh, really strained. My wife, my two grandkids, my son, everybody got sick. Everybody got this damn cold. And I fought it off and I fought it off. And I swear to God, my wife has Munchausers by proxy or something right now. Because she just about did everything she possibly could to make sure I got sick. It just seemed like that to me. And uh, she did it. She pulled it off. So uh, we got to go out the last last week of the year with a rough voice. But I didn't want to bail on you guys. So I'm going to get through it with you. All right. So let's start out with our uh, two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is BulkAmmo.com. Um, there's a lot of talk about gun grabbing going on right now, especially up in Virginia. And uh, I like the model that the Virginia citizens are are doing. I like the way that they're using their local apparatuses at county and city levels to say, no, we're not going to comply with this crap. But I'll tell you what, every time gun grabbing starts, the first thing that dries up is not the guns. It's the ammo. Because the ammo is the part that, well, you fire that, 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 that cartridge, it's, it's gone. Projectile leaves, unless you know how to reload, you need more. And I've always referred to ammo as the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead. Well, a great place to get your ammo in bulk, which is how I always buy it, bulkammo.com. Shipping so fast, it'll get there before you bother to leave the house to go buy it at the sporting goods store and deal with idiots there. All the common calibers and great pricing and great service, and a loyal sponsor has been with us for seven years. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. Next up, JM Bullion, the real precious metal, silver and gold. I've recommended 5 to 10% of your net wealth into silver and gold since the day this show started. That, result, that, that recommendation has never changed. But why JM Bullion? Okay, they have better pricing than Monix, Atmex, etc., Lear Capital, so they already got a better price advantage. Silver and gold is the same thing no matter what it is. That's why you buy it in the first place. They've supported this show for eight years now. They give you a discount if you're an MSB member, and all your orders ship free. My question for you is if you're going to buy silver and gold, why would you buy it anywhere other than Jam Bullion? Check them out today at jambullion.com. With that, let's get into it. I want to start out with a quote today. This one also came from John, John Adam, and it's by um, Richard Feynman. I love this quote. I really love this quote because it kills two fallacies in one shot. They're kind of twin fallacies on the opposite poles. Here's the quote. Have no respect whatsoever for authority. Forget who said it, and instead look at where he starts with, where he ends up, and ask yourself, is this reasonable? The two fallacies this destroys, which are kind of polar opposites, is the appeal to authority fallacy and the ad hominem fallacy. You think about it. So appeal to authority is a pretty obvious fallacy for most people. You're appealing to some Well, because so-and-so said it, it must be true. Well, if we're going to follow Feynman's advice here and have no respect for the authority, well, then we can't do that. Then we only have to argue. We have to examine the argument as though we don't even know what the source is. We have to examine the argument, its validity, and its logic. But ad hominem, ad hominem is the fallacy that I find to be the more prevalent fallacy in the world today. Ad hominem means attacking the source versus the versus the argument. You know, well, so and so said this. Well, that's Snopes. Everybody knows Snopes is leftist. Yes, Snopes is leftist. But you have not successfully argued against the case made in, let's say, a Snopes article. And I find most, not all, most of their articles to be well thought out and logical and generally reaching a reasonable conclusion. Now, it doesn't mean I you know, support the people behind the website, but I can't deny the argument when it's fact-based, cites sources, provides substantial evidence, and often verifies things that the right claims to be true as being true. You're attacking the source instead of the, the, the argument. And if we are going to have no respect whatsoever for authority, 
We also cannot have a predisposed bias against the person making the argument because we don't like who they are. And then we have to actually focus on the issue. And I think that we would uh, get a lot further if more of us did that. With that, let's go ahead and get into it today. Um, let's start out with why I'm considering hydroponics for this concept and using it in today's discussion. Number one, I've talked about this over the years, but I have short-term obsessions. It's part of what helps me live life as a polymath, a person that can do a lot of different things. And what I'm able to do, I don't know if I'm able to do it or if it's just so inherent to me that I have no choice, is I find something new that I find interesting. And I become completely obsessed with it. And I'll learn more about it in a month than a lot of people will in a year. Generally speaking, within a week after something raises my interest that I take an active interest and engage with learning about it and actually doing it, I could probably stand up in front of a room and do three or four presentations on it that somebody doing it for a year would learn something in. Now, that doesn't say anything about me. That's not, oh, I'm so, don't take it that way. I'm not talking about ego here. I'm being honest that I get obsessed with things. And I, I've, I've encouraged this in y'all. Find things become obsessed with them. Just, just digest as much as you can and then continue to do whatever's useful in your life and go obsessed with something else. But when I, if you've listened to this show over the years, you know when I obsess on something, I'm going to bring it to you because that's when it's most fresh. And I know I learn the most when I teach. So that's why I picked it. Um, but I have some other real reasons for it and why it's got me obsessed. One, it's tailored to year-round consistent production. When I think about, like, if I put a market garden in, in Texas, I have a really harsh period of winter and an equally harsh summer. I have a myriad of pests, and it would be complicated to make the kind of value proposition that I'm going to make during this presentation today to a customer. But with hydroponics, one way or another, I can say, I can do this for you in January, this for you in February, this for you in March. Even if it's a different thing or less of something in that, that period of time, I still know what I can do very, very consistently. It can be climate independent. I'm not really going to talk about it that way today. I'm trying to minimize expenses. So... For instance, I don't want to use grow lights in a climate like mine unless I absolutely have to. When the sun's there, the sun's free. At least for now, the government's not taxing it yet. So I'm not going to really come at it from that way, but most of the hydroponic farms today, unless they're, you know, they're, there's two really, two main categories. One is high tunnels and greenhouses, which is kind of where I'm going with this. And the other is inside buildings which has a tremendous amount of advantage. You have no weather fluctuations, etc. So even though I'm not going to do it that way, you could do it that way. And depending on where you live, it might make more sense. I believe that it's probably the best agricultural system that can use modular expansion on demand, meaning to produce X, Y, or Z varieties. I know exactly how much I get out of this four-foot-by-four-foot rafted space. And as long as I have room to expand, I don't have to expand until I get a new client. And I can expand exactly as much as I need to serve that client in the type of business model I'm going to give you today. The next is it's ideal for short-duration crops. And I think the smaller you are, the more short-duration, harvest rapidly, you know, harvest frequently crops you need to survive. If you have a thousand acres, you can make a living, not a great one, but a decent living farming corn or soy or both. You really can. If you have a half of an acre, you can't make a living on corn. You can't. And the longer it takes to harvest, the longer you have to expend labor and expense before you have revenue. When you have crops that can be harvested every four weeks, five weeks, or in the case of microgreens, you know, every 10 days. And those crops don't need to occupy the larger space for the entirety of their grow-out. 
So with hydro, we can set systems up where if a plant takes five weeks to harvest size, for its first three weeks, it's in a much smaller area until it's moved out to a larger area. And the labor necessary to do that move is very, very small. And you can train someone to do it in five minutes. You can literally hire people with no skills and teach them to do the labor-intensive portion of this in a day. Um, and last, with Kratky technologies, which I'm learning more and more about, it can be almost zero energy input. We don't need a pump. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't use a pump in certain situations. But I've kind of been blown away as I started to look at some videos of small-scale commercial operations doing cracky aquaponics. Hydroponics, I'm sorry. Man, I'm stuck on that. Um, massive scale for small. And when I look at the cost differential, I looked at a system today called the 10K. I thought, well, maybe it's $10,000. For what it was, I was like, that's really a good deal. Uh, I was $105,000 from the largest uh, hydro provider in the country. At least that's what they say about themselves. That's greenhouse fans, uh, everything, like turnkey kit. But one hundred ten grand. And I've looked at systems that are built on Cracky that are growing as much as that system that probably didn't take $5,000 to build. And I, I just wouldn't recommend someone go out and get a small business loan, put $110,000 into something before they made the first dollar. And I think Cracky's probably the least expensive way to get into hydro, and it's easy to prove out. It's easy to learn, develop your model, and then go to market. Because you can build a system, a trial system, for a hundred bucks. With cheap plastic from Home Depot, some cinder blocks, and some two by fours. And that system can grow, you know, fifty heads of lettuce a run. Or ten of this, ten of that, ten of this, and ten of that. A run. It give you all the data you need to know your cost of production. So that's why I've, I've, I've kind of honed in on that today. Um, here's what I would consider in my climate. Uh, I would go greenhouse-based. And greenhouse-based gives me a um, tremendous amount of flexibility in my climate. Because I have two problems in this climate. I have cold weather from about now through March. And it ebbs and flows. I might have a week of absolutely beautiful weather. I just did. And then you wake up this morning, it's 29 degrees. So having some sort of a greenhouse to use solar gain for heat and not have to heat a space with electricity or gas, a huge advantage in my climate. If you live in, you know, upper Maine, and you want to do a hydroponic farm, especially with the model I'm going to give you, you might just want to find an old warehouse and pay for lighting and pay for heat. Um, most crops, and again, I, you know, I really need to back up. I wrote a good intro for this, and I'm just going to read it to you now. And I, I should have done this at the beginning, but I'm sorry. I'm a little off my game due to uh, the voice issue. Um, disclaimer, I'm new to hydroponics. And I'm not laying this out today as a cut-and-paste template. There are already hundreds of highly successful farms out there from 1,000 square foot to tens of acres doing hydroponics. Some are highly efficient to the point where not much more can be leaned out. It's a business, and it's a highly predictable one compared to many other forms of farming. So some of what I'm going to tell you today might be totally wrong. It's a thought experiment. I've been running a thought, this thought experiment based on a few concepts. First, when it comes to farming, growing is not as critical as marketing and sales, specifically at small-scale and non-storable commodity crops. I have no doubt I could set up a system that produces 100 or 1,000 heads of lettuce a day, but if it doesn't sell, what do you have? The next concept is local food is a huge movement right now. Many farm-to-table restaurants and stores have popped up, yet I've been to a lot of them. And I would say an average plate at a farm-to-table restaurant is maybe 20% of it is actually locally produced, up to 50. But I've never seen anything with 100%, so there's lots of room. 
Restaurants are good at forecasting their needs. When we had restaurants for our duck egg business, one store bought 20 dozen a week, every week, for two years. They never wanted more. They never wanted less. They knew that's what they needed. And that made everything predictable. We loved them and they loved us because we always had the product for them. And they always had the order for us. Then we want to look at how much expense we can lean out. And the way I'm coming at this today is you can lean out expenses, but if you really do a good job, what you can do is charge more money. And if you said, Jack, you can grow your sales by 25% next year, what would be your what would be your preferred way to do it? And I would say that my number one way I would want to grow sales by 25% is be able to raise my price 25% across the board, keep my cost of, cost of production constant, and not take a single additional customer. That is the best thing for my business. That lets me grow my business even more because now I have more money I can reinvest into it. But I would take that over selling you know, 40% more crop to get 25% more revenue, depending on margin. I'd much rather just charge more. It's all profit at that point. And people think you don't want to be more expensive than your, your competition. Let me tell you what you want to be. You want to be more expensive than your competition and your customer to not care. That's the most solid business you can have. Um, Maserati is not afraid that Chevy's going to come out with a $30,000 car that's going to take away their customers. People buy Maseratis because they want Maseratis. They buy Chevys because that's what they settle for. And what do you want to be in the business of doing? Selling low-end used Chevys or upper-end Maseratis and Ferraris? If you're going to be a small producer in ag, I mean, since there's no nothing that prevents you from being the Ferrari, why not be the Ferrari? So even though I'm going to make mistakes in my ideas that I present to you on the technical, like here's how I would do it, I'm telling you the marketing is the key. And the marketing is market yourself as a Ferrari. And just to be blunt, and this is from my, you know, my hardcore sales days, if you're selling to a restaurant that charges $12.50 for a small salad and you don't get the order because somebody's lettuce is 20 cents a pound less than yours, it's on you. It's on you. You didn't sell it right. Your product is either inferior, which it shouldn't be, because you can fix that, or you didn't explain to your customer fully what makes your product superior and how they can sell it. And that's the other side of it. When you're dealing with this level of a restaurant that we're talking about today, they're selling their product. Their menu is their sales brochure. We're not talking about McDonald's here, folks, or even Chili's. We're talking about restaurants that you can actually sell to the chef, that the chef is selling to the customer. The customer comes in and they're actually discerning in what they buy. That's why they're there. That's the market we're, we're hitting at least first here. Um, so now let me go back to my model. Greenhouse-based. So, again, my winners, I can have really harsh winners. But they're never long duration. But if everything's dead... Or it's just so cold that you don't get enough production to fill your orders. It doesn't matter that you're not as cold as Pennsylvania, let's say. So the other thing I've got is just brutal sun in the summer. Well, if you have a greenhouse structure up, you just know, and this is what I do with my pepper production for myself right now. I just know about January or July 1st, Shade clock goes on my it goes up on my aviary. That's all, you know. It just goes up there, and I know about September fifteenth it comes down. I know what percentage of shade cloth to use for pepper production. So I would have a lot of control if I did that here, with warming in the winter and shade in the summer, um, and then some sort of minimal supplemental heat, because even a greenhouse in this climate to keep production high. You're going to have to have some supplemental heat. I went out to my greenhouse this morning. The sun wasn't quite up yet. It was 29 degrees outside, and it was 29 degrees inside the greenhouse. Now, this is not the most efficient greenhouse. It's got some openings. It's currently being redone right now. But, you know, that's a valid component there. 
I went out an hour later. It was 31 degrees outside temperature. It was 54 degrees inside the greenhouse since that sun got up. So there has to be some level of supplemental heat. And that could be gas or electric, actually forced air heating, um, just on the nights that it's necessary. That would be one. That's an expense, though. Here's my thought. And I've, I've thought about doing this in my greenhouse anyway, so I'll probably test it this year. And Sean Mills gave me the idea. But I think I've maybe got a way to make it even better. A small pump that takes your fluid, this was for aquaponics, it would work equally well for hydroponics, through a solar heater back down into your sump. So when the sun's up, you're pumping fluid up to a roof through a solar heater really, really slow. You don't need a lot of pump. In fact, slower is better. It gets, it gains a lot of heat and it goes back into your sump. Well, if you did that in a hydro system, and I know I said cracky, but you can do cracky, and you can also run a pump through cracky and move fluid only when you want to. Because once you set an overflow point in a cracky system, you can raise it and lower it. So one of the things you can do with a cracky system is you can plumb a float valve to it. And then once it gets down to a certain level, the float valve keeps it at that level. Well, you can perform the same metric by putting an overflow point in it that returns to a sump. And you can run that pump once a week for 15 minutes. And you'll maintain that level. It'll drop in between that week, but it won't drop far enough that the plants can't get access to the fluid. Well, what if during your winter, you ran that pump more frequently? So there's your, you know, only using power when you need it. But you did that so that you warmed all the water in the system. So now when the sun goes down, and it's going to be 20 degrees tonight inside that greenhouse, all your fluid is 80 degrees. You're going to maintain much more consistent temperatures, and you could do it with almost no energy. Because the way I was thinking about running the fluid through the heater, you're only going to do that when the sun's out. So you need a small pump that can run directly off a single solar panel. And when the sun comes up, pump starts running. Sun goes down, pump shuts off. That simple. That simple. Now, it might make sense to not do that with solar. You know, it might be so inexpensive to do with electricity. And then you need some sort of a sensor that says, well, once the temperature of the water is above X, stop, no matter how, no matter what, so that you don't overheat it. That's low-end tech, though, guys. Now you've got a greenhouse that self-heats. Using the fluid, you're already growing the plants in that's already there. And one small pump, even if you don't do Kratky, you could theoretically, if you set it up right, run a half-acre greenhouse on a single $50 pump that pulls 25 watts with four foot ahead. I mean, it really can be that easy because gravity. So I just see like a tremendous way that you can develop advantages from a cost and energy standpoint with this. Um, I would do most of my crops, and I'm going to start using the term Kratky style beds. Because a Kratky bed means that you have non-circulating fluid. You're not using a pump, air, or water pump. And you're suspending somehow your plant, and you're letting the water as it is used and evaporates drop, creating the air gap for the plants. That same bed can use an air pump. It can use a fluid pump. You don't need any modification at all to it other than plumbing to and from it to do that. And you could set them up as Kratky, and when you wanted to do it later, you could easily... All I would say is think about a way to get fluid out of that tank and control the depth of it when you do, when you put it in. If it's a bulkhead with a stopper, whatever. Because if you put that in initially, you can change your model without moving anything if you want to move fluid through.
right? So most of my crops will be done with cracky, shallow flatbeds and probably grown as much as is theoretically possible with a cracky style. Because I want to be able to sell to my customer, we're, we're almost zero input on energy. Because they have socially conscious customers. Most of their customers are not socially conscious. They want to be seen as socially conscious. Whatever. I will sell whatever fits my target. So being able to say, look, I can do all this with almost no energy. Or be able to walk in to do a presentation and hand them a pump that's about the size of a friggin' bottle of beer. Say, we run our whole half-acre greenhouse on this. And it only runs 15 minutes every two hours. That makes an impact in the space that we're talking about. It should make an impact anywhere. Because I do want to use less energy if I can. It makes sense economically, and it makes sense from a standpoint of sustainability. Uh, I would do trials. I'm, gonna probably do, I'm probably not going to build this business. I don't have time. You know, maybe I find somebody to build it with. I don't know. I really have grown to have sour taste in my mouth on doing stuff like that. Um, but I want to know the, the viability of it. And I like to grow food. So I'm going to trial probably hundreds of varieties of crops this year. A lot of the stuff we just talked about with the Baker Creek Show, like Purple Lady Pak Choy. Boy, I bet that would sell to restaurant chefs around here. I mean, that plant, especially if it was grown to a baby bok choy size, steamed, simmered, stir-fried, whatever, and pretty much left whole, served as a side with some sort of like chefy drizzle on it, the impact that would make to a customer. And then when you said that was grown locally, and you could deliver it in February, or you can deliver it in August, man. So I trial hundreds of varieties of crops, but I want to build a catalog on what works really good for me, the producer. What are the 30 things that I can produce like clockwork? This is a 45-day crop. This is a 62-day crop. It looks like this when it's done. This is my yield in a four-foot square raft with 30 plants in it. This is exactly what it looks like, and this thing works good for me. And you might find, well, this thing works really good for me March to September or March to October. Well, it's in the catalog available for that date range. And I want a good 20 or 30 dependable things with a lot of variety every month of the year, year-round available, so that I can go in and say, hey, look, here's what we can provide you. Exact and here's what it's going to look like. And we'll save the presentation for a minute. But I would want to find, so instead of taking this And investing hundreds of thousands of dollars, going big right from the beginning. What I love about Cracky Hydro is you can go out and you can build. And I'm going to give you a video today that shows the, the, the money and the parts to build a four-foot-by-four-foot four raft bed with stuff that you can go pick up at Home Depot and build tomorrow for under 100 bucks a bed. And this one uses a pump, which is $50, which you don't need if you use the Cracky model with it. And I bet you can find stuff laying around your house and build a Cracky system to start trialing plants without spending any money at all, if you look hard enough. And if you do spend some money, I bet you for 50 bucks, you can grow more plants than this kid's growing in his four-foot square model. The reason I'm going to show you this model is spending some money and making things specific and modular and the same every time makes a lot of sense in a business. And it gives you an idea of what can be done. But I would trial hundreds of crops. Because you can look at something and go, wow, that's pretty red. That's pretty pink. That looks really good. And you might grow it and find out you have inconsistent results with it in your climate. And I'm all for always improving. So you might find that this you know, particular product didn't work well. It's not in your catalog. And maybe it needs a little different pH. Maybe it needs a little tweak. And it needs to be in its own tank. And you can play with that in a little space, your little research and development department of your business, until you figure it out. And is it worth it? But until you do, it's not in the catalog. What's in the catalog? You know that you could take a customer, and in 40 days, let's say, turn that customer up with regular production 
of exactly what they want as though they were ordering it, pointing and clicking and buying it on a website, which is the way most of them buy it right now. Most of them buy it right now that way because they have to be able to serve their customer. But they're buying from large wholesalers who are buying from massive, in many cases, hydroponic growers. The reason you can go to a um, Costco or what have you and buy a giant tub of organic mixed greens for five bucks is most of it's grown hydroponically. I've done enough research that I can confidently say that's the case. They, they have them on rafts and they have a machine and they grow to a certain size and the guy harvesting it picks that raft up, puts it on a conveyor belt and it's automatically cut, packaged and, and it's done. That's all the guy, he puts the raft through the cutter. Somebody picks it on the other side, knocks all the plugs out of the holes, they spray it off, clean it, fill it back up and stick it at the beginning side of the tank and start pushing them across. Because they're, and they can, they can do it with the right fertilizers and call it organic. And there's no dirt. So you don't have to wash anything. Everything's clean. All the, all the greens are dry. That's why they can sell the way they do. So your chef that you'd be selling to that's buying this spring mix or whatever, it's probably hydroponically grown already. But it's grown in California or Hawaii or Colorado or who knows where. You're going to grow in his back door where you can come look at it. That's just one idea, but I think it would work. But I want that catalog to be like, holy crap. Wow. And I want that chef to look at that and start thinking in his mind, what could we do with this? All right. And then, because you can trial this in whatever you decide is your trial size grow area, you can get rock-solid cost-of-goods-sold numbers. You know this head of lettuce cost me $0.37 cents to produce. So if I sell it for $2.37, I make $2 a head. You don't think that. You know that. Assuming that you use Excel, you put the right numbers in, you don't bullshit yourself. Including figuring out labor costs. If you don't want to do all the work yourself. And you know time to market from sowing. So you know to grow this product. The seed has to go in on day one. Transplants go out on day 17. Harvest is on day 43. You don't think, you know. When you have those numbers, you can put that catalog together. You can put your price on it. You don't have to apologize for it. You don't have to shit your pants and wonder whether or not you're going to make money or lose money when you sell the product that way. Now you've only turned up a little bit. You go out and find your first customer. I'll tell you how to do that in a second. But once you have that customer... You've built enough to satisfy that customer's needs. You now use your revenue from that customer to take your production beyond what they need. You sell that production to your next customer. And your customer might have to take his first month of orders without getting exactly what he wants. Because you are going to tailor your expansion to his needs. And if you lose him... Oh, well. Oh, well. You replace him. If you have to fire sale one harvest, you do it. Now, I have an even more interesting idea on how to start putting this together. So I'm going to give you my full how I would market and sell this product. Because, see, instead of selling lettuce, now I'm selling the holistic system. But I had one little idea as I was going through this that didn't make it into the notes, and I'll lead with it here. It's probably the case that You need to overproduce what your customer says they need to account for some failures, because you will have some failures. And it's likely the case that they need occasion, no matter how good their forecasting is, a little bit more than you have committed to producing for them. So you have to overproduce. So for every customer, you can figure out, and I don't know what that number is. Is it 10%? Is it 15%? But you overproduce. You back that into your numbers so you're still selling it. But you price your individual units a little higher so it looks like they get it for free. If that seems unethical, 
then just imagine that that's not what you're doing. It's all in how you present it. You've agreed to sell this much for that much. They're okay with it. And what you say to them is, let's form a cooperative with a local food bank or group of local food banks. And whatever you don't use each cycle, we give it to that food bank. And I'd like your help because most restaurants don't see other restaurants as the enemy. If you have a good restaurant, it's full all the time. At least it's full on all the nights that are busy in a given town or city. And they generally get along. So I want your help in getting other restaurants. Because if we had 20 restaurants doing this, you would never have to doubt whether or not I was viable to keep providing for you. And if all 20 of you were working together in a cooperative, along with us, to donate your food, what message does that send to your customers? It's pretty powerful. Again, we're dealing with, at that kind of higher-end restaurant, the socially conscious consumer. Okay, so here's the sales process. And I did professional sales for over a decade. And I guarantee you, by the time I made my first presentation, this would get a lot of changes, a lot of tweaks, and a lot of improvements. But this would be the core that I would build off of it. So my catalog of produce is going to be 15 to 30 items. I don't know how many yet. Don't get hung up on any numbers I give you here because the numbers are going to be dictated by the production schedule, by what grows, by the market, etc. So you're going to derive the numbers from the experience. But let's, I gave something so you kind of get in your head what I'd be aiming for. Catalog of produce is going to be 15 to 30 items with seasonal variation. So I'm going to be able to walk in with a catalog and say, this is what you can order from us. But I am going to have a gross space that I'm doing market research with, but primarily it's going to be my marketing production beds. This space over here is dedicated to having product to give to prospective customers that I don't have yet. So that when I walk in, I can go in there with a full assortment of all the produce. If you were my customer this month, I could give you this daily, weekly, monthly, however often you want. Maybe it's two or three of everything. Two or three heads of this kind of lettuce, that kind of lettuce, spinach, watercress, whatever. Here, boom. Just imagine it laid out. Hell, bring it in the rafts. Bring it in the rafts. Four foot by four foot could fit in the back of a truck, especially a covered truck, so it doesn't get beat up. Two or three rafts laid out. Boom. Now, we'll deliver it all packaged up and everything for you. I wanted you to see what it looks like when we grow it. And maybe that's not the best way to do it. Maybe you're better off having it packaged. But what I'm talking about is dropping on a, on a desk or a table in front of an executive chef Something that looks like a, a stock photo from a farmer's market. And I don't want to sell them this lettuce or this basil or this mazuma. I want to sell them a space in my facility. What we want to know is how much of this would you use? Weekly, daily, annually? And, you know... In the, in the fall, we have these other things. In the spring, we have these other things. You know, Here's pictures of them. And then when you tell us how much you need, we know exactly how much space is required in our facility. And we'd like you to come look at it. What you're selling is like co-location in telecommunications. It's something that I used to work and, and, and deal with in sales. I wasn't selling the co-location. I was selling a facility... Um, not the facility, the, the, the equipment that went in the facilities. But that was part of the packaging. Like, this customer wants to be able to do this thing, and they need to colo my equipment. So I would go out and find the facility and work that into the deal out for them so that when I offered them my equipment, I had a full package, even though I couldn't provide a full package. And I'm telling you, people love that. You've just solved my problem. Now, the chef really doesn't have a problem 
But they have an ego. I am telling you, they are some of the biggest ego people on the planet. They like feeling like something's just for them. I don't even mean it in a bad way. There's There are certain professions that people are just better at with a small amount of arrogance. I want my surgeon to be a little bit arrogant. I really do. A chef that's got a little bit of arrogance is going to be a little more edgy. They're going to push things a little further. And having their own place. This is my place. And that means that I have infinite expansion capability. I only grow when the market demand dictates my growth. And I only grow by the space needed for one customer every time I grow. So if I lose one customer, I'm only overbuilt by that. And that's what I use to dump into my farmer's markets and do for samples and presentations to other chefs. And if I really get down to it, as long as I'm making money, I throw that into my co-op and I give it to the food bank this month. And that breeds goodwill. And if you get the customer of the restaurant to care about what you're doing, customers that go to nice restaurants go to more than one, and they start asking other restaurants, why don't you do this? I'll tell you a place I saw this in a totally different model, and I, I thought it was brilliant. We went to a Mexican restaurant in uh, North Carolina when I was on vacation with my wife. And Dorothy and I have never been big on eating rice and beans. It's like we always felt that it was wasteful. And often we would say, just don't bring us the rice and beans. Well, what would you like? Just don't bring us, just don't worry about it. But we still have to charge you for it. I, I don't care. Just don't waste it. What this restaurant had figured out is a lot of people felt that way. And, you know, two people might go to a restaurant and they might eat a little bit of beans and a little bit of rice. Honestly, one of them could have got it, one of them not, and they still wouldn't eat, eat it all. But it kind of was like a thing, like it was expected to be there. So they came up with a thing, if you didn't want your rice and beans, you told them, and then they earmarked that much rice and beans for their monthly contribution to a food kitchen. And they fed people the food that you bought but you didn't eat yourself instead of throwing it away. This is just a re see, you just start if you want to be good at sales and marketing, you develop that pattern of recognition, you go, how do I take this thing? Because I'm not running a Mexican restaurant. Honestly, the restaurants I'm talking about were well, a little bit of a cut above this type of place. But how do I repurpose that for good for everybody? Well that's that's how I would do that. Um and I think that the way you do this And this would differentiate you because I don't know anybody doing it. You have to do a full professional sales presentation, including value-add sales material for them. I would develop a brochure, how we source our local produce. Professional brochure. But it would really be more like a, uh, you know how you have a menu insert with the specials and it's laminated on both, it's like you flip it over, it doesn't really open that they put inside your menu to let you know about this month's specials or whatever, I would build them something like that. Well, how do I get these? Well, if you're a customer, we, we give you X amount of them. The same for everybody. You don't put the restaurant's name on it. Put your name on it. You know, if you need more than that, then, you know, we have it. We sell them at cost. Whatever. So that now they have a value add. The way, you, the way you sell product to an end user when you're not dealing with the end user is you make it easy for your reseller, whether that's a chef or a, um, a, a retail outlet, it doesn't matter, to sell your product, basic merchandising 101. No one's doing this in this world, not that I know of anyway. And so you give that presentation. It's probably 15 to 30 minutes long. And your close is actually inviting them to come tour the facility and evaluate it. And again, that might change. If I find a way to close that deal in five minutes, I'm going to close that deal in five minutes. And all the follow-up I'll do on the pull-through side to create a greater bond with the customer. But I want, if you do this, I want that customer to feel like, I don't ever want this these people to go away. There's something, like, I want them to want to visit you. I want them to be like, hey, I've got this this uh, client of ours that comes in, you know, a few times a month, really high end, 
this is entertaining here. And I was telling them about your facility. I, I would like to, can I bring my customer to see your greenhouse? Well, of course you can. It's your space in my greenhouse. Of course you can. I want that guy to have ownership in that space. Um, the, 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 the upside to this, even if you didn't go this far, if you build the model from a production standpoint this way, chefs could select exactly what they want, know the cost and delivery for a full year at a time. They know exactly what they're going to get. They can change it. They know how long it takes to make changes, etc. You can do custom stuff for them. You can set aside space that's for custom grow. They're paying for it. They're paying for it. You could you could conceivably say within our catalog, whatever this space produce costs this much a week. It's still buying it by the item, but that gives them flexibility to make some changes. They just know how long it takes to make a change. If you want to start growing a new crop and it takes 45 days to grow it, we need to know 45 days in advance of when you want it. But you can give incredible flexibility. You can't quite do what a huge wholesaler can. But you can do 95% and you can do it 100% better. Um, and again, they would have that designated space. They could even sell that to their customers. We deal with Nine Mile Farm. We have our own space dedicated at the, at the Nine Mile Farm. And I'm telling you, man, this level of customer, they have an ego that digs that. Now, I think you could do this with um, retail outlets as well. Direct-to-consumer, I'm not exactly sure how you would do this and make it financially viable. Because how much lettuce does one family use? I, I really don't know that you can justify it, but maybe you can. You could have you know some portion set aside for direct sales. But I think that you would find that if you could build up 25, 30 restaurants in this model, you're really going large commercial to get any bigger than that. And you could probably make a living off of it, especially if you find other add-in products to sell. I mean, this really teams well with, like, pastured poultry or pastured pork. You know, but that's a, that's a whole different animal, pun intended, I guess. Um, or some other product, including maybe products you don't produce. See, once you have a customer base, the two easiest ways to sell more, one I already gave you today, you raise your price, and if you have customers that value you at a premium, when you raise your price, they say, okay, If you have 20 customers and you raise your price by 25% and you lose one, and that's 5% of your business you lose with a 25% increase in sales, I'd almost do it again and see else to leave. If nobody leaves, great. And I only got one customer to replace. The other way is to add more product into the channel. So one of my greatest sales mentors, is he's still around too, kind of got nuts a little bit, but... He's out on Facebook all the time. He's a boomer. He is a real okay boomer. Like the, the, the phrase was meant for him, but he was a good sales guy. And he said to me, if you listen to your customers, they'll train you how to do your job. And he was right. As a salesperson, I learned the most about how to sell to my customers by closing my mouth and listening to my customers. Unfortunately, I found that most companies don't listen to their customers. Because as a salesperson, I'd go back and go, you know what? If you'll change the layout on this board and make a specialty product that'll fit inside this tube, I can sell $750,000 worth of them for you tomorrow. And they wouldn't do it. Well, why's it got to go in a tube? I'll explain it, but is that really where we want to go with this? Well, with this type of business, you don't have to... I mean, I can understand respinning a board is difficult. It would have been worth it in the example I just gave you, because that was one order. But in in the in a, in agricultural business, it's a lot easier to be flexible. One person can make a decision. And if you build a book of business, your customers will tell you, if you had this, I would buy it from you. And then you either figure out how to produce it or how to procure it. And you become a hybrid 
of a cooperative buying club and a producer. You might even create another entity and move your product through that entity so that entity is independent of your own. So that if you ever got to a point where you wanted to retire, you'd be able to sell off either or only one separately. Because that would have a higher return for you as the owner of those two separate entities versus a combined entity. See, farming's a business, guys. And that's why today's show hopefully was a lesson not just in hydroponics and agriculture, but business. I know it's not my best show. I know that my voice is weak. But I hope you enjoyed it because I enjoyed doing it. And in the end, this is all just an idea, but one I think that could scale easily and apply to other markets, products, and methods. I'd be interested in hearing from some of y'all. What other markets could you see this type of approach applying to? Or what other agricultural products might this type of approach you know, work for? With that, we have wrapped up another episode. And if you want to help support my show, especially this time of year when all the shopping's going on, the easiest thing you can do, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the American Boys Handybook, What to Do and How to Do It. This book was first published in 1882, and of course that's long before the days of every kid getting a trophy and wrapping a kid in bubble wrap before he could ride on a swing set. Um, there's some amazing stuff in this book. I'm going to pull up short on talking today because... Again, the voice. Um, but it's an amazing book. Sling bows and all kinds of dangerous stuff. But it's not that dangerous. It's all kinds of stuff I did when I was a kid in the 80s. But I didn't have a book to tell me how to do it all. Um, this book was handed to like 10-year-old kids back in the 1880s. And just go nuts. Go, here's how to make a fire. Here's how to make a sling bow, etc. Here's how to hunt an animal. Here's how to do taxidermy. It's pretty cool. It is a piece of Americana. I first found it uh, with a friend of mine named Kurt who I worked with. He uh, had an original copy that he would not sell to me. Uh, years later, I found out it had hit public domain and was being reprinted. It's available. I think it would be a great gift for your kid or grandkid or whatever. And, boy, I'll tell you what, I think just the fact that it exists probably probably tweaks some people off. And giving it to a kid because it tweaks other people off probably worth doing. Check it out, the American Boys Handybook, What to Do and How to Do It. Do not buy the Kindle version. Don't do it. Uh, since it's public domain, somebody made a Kindle version. It basically scans, and it sucks. But the reprint is looks just like the original, and it's inexpensive, and it's cool, and what a piece of American history. Great Christmas gift. That brings us to our song of the day today. Um, Christmas week, Christmas song week. This is Christmas for Cowboys from John Denver. It's just a cool Christmas song. And it's also from 1975. And I just say in today's climate, I kind of miss the 70s and 80s I grew up in, or even when people disagreed vehemently over subjects, they all got along a lot better. I think you can kind of feel that in this song. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. All in saddle, spend Christmas Day, driving cattle. Snow-covered plains All of the good gifts given today Ours is the sky and the wide open range Back in the cities they have different ways Football and eggnog and Christmas parades I'll take the blanket, I'll take the reins. It's Christmas for cowboys, wide open plains. A campfire for warmth as we stop for the night. Stars overhead. Christmas tree lights The wind sings a hymn As we bow down to pray It's Christmas for cowboys And wide open plains
saddle, spend Christmas Day driving cattle over snow-covered plains. So many gifts have been open today. Ours is the sky, the wide open range. It's Christmas for cowboys and wide open plains.